Hello, and welcome to our new series of podcasts focusing on primary care networks. I'm Will Owen, a GP trainee and clinical fellow at NHS England, and each month I'll be interviewing a range of people from across the country who are working in or around primary care networks to get their perspective on some of the benefits, challenges and opportunities that working in networks can bring. Primary care networks have most recently been described in the NHS long-term plan and the new GP contract, based on the experiences of GPs around the country who have naturally and independently found a new way of working together to provide great benefits for patients and staff. Primary care networks bring together GPs and wider primary care teams with community services, social care, the voluntary sector and other health and care partners. They support and build on the essential core role of current general practice, but enable the provision of a more proactive, personalised and coordinated health and social care. Networks are therefore an important part of delivering the NHS long-term plan and securing the future of primary and community care for our patients and staff. The intention is that these networks will be small enough to provide the personalised care valued by both patients and GPs, but at the same time large enough to have impact and economies of scale through deeper collaboration between practices and others in the local health and social care system. This month, and kicking off our series, I'm really pleased to welcome Dr Charlotte Caniff, who's the clinical chair of North West Surrey CCG and the clinical lead for primary care transformation within Surrey Heartlands ICS. Welcome to the podcast, Charlotte, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Will. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> Charlotte, can you start by telling us a little more about your current role and what motivated you to get into that locally? Certainly. So um, I became the clinical chair at North West Surrey um, nearly three years ago now. Um, I'm a jobbing GP. That's my, uh, my main alma mater. I've been uh, a partner for 18 years in my local patch. Um, I'm passionate about primary care. Um, I'm passionate about longitudinal care of patients and primary care really is the only speciality that allows you to have that longitudinal care. Um, and uh, as a chair, I got the opportunity to um, come to NHS England's uh, ICS programme for primary care. And, and it's there that I really started to develop my passion um, and really started to hear about network development long before the, the contract uh, became a reality. Um, so I took what I was hearing from that uh, national meeting and, and brought it into our local ICS, um, where we have um, started to uh, develop the primary care network plan across uh, our 850,000 population in, our, in Surrey Heartlands. And how many, uh, how many primary care networks do you have in that ICS footprint? So we are currently at 18 primary care networks across that footprint. Um, we may, our footprint is made up of three CCGs um, who were already working um, in localities, in, in sub-CCG localities um, as, GP, uh, as GPs um, and our networks have been really made up from breaking down those localities into slightly smaller um, groups of practices that made sense geographically mm. and actually in some areas um, sticking with the full locality size. Um, I think one of the um, things we'll get onto in, in, in answering your questions is that sometimes you just have to go with what is working already in your areas um, and there is, uh, we've been very um, organic with how we've allowed our networks to develop. Brilliant, so you have a perspective both um, at an ICS level of helping develop these networks but also I guess within your own practice and your own network. Um, mm. Fascinating. And so you heard about networks from a, from a meeting you said, but what was it that 
sort of inspired you to, to, to take that and develop it locally? Sure. Um, I think we all realise that um, healthcare is changing um, and no more... I mean, he, patient need is changing. Um, our patients are living longer, um, which is great, but they're often living longer with complex long-term conditions. Mm. Um, and the role of a, of a GP in, in that relationship and in that uh, patient's life is also changing. Um, and we are uh, unable to carry on working in the way that we have worked um, up until now. Um, locally ourselves, we're having workforce issues, so we can't recruit uh, into roles. General practice is becoming a really tough place to work. Um, and we realised that uh, in order to sustain and keep primary care resilient, we needed to uh, allow primary care to adapt and change so that it could um, manage the changing needs of our population. Um, and I see primary care networks as a way of doing that, um, of allowing practices to um, come together at scale where, where it makes sense um, to provide services. Um, and I also see some of it as returning in a way to the good old days. When I went, when I st I'm sounding old now, but when I went, started in practice nearly 20 years ago now, um, you know, we had our own district nurse, we had our own health visitor, we had our own psychologist, we had our own physio, um, you know, and, uh, and we had our own um, community team of, 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 of people, of staff really, who we could call upon to look after our patients in the community. Now workforce is such that it's not realistic for an individual practice to have that team anymore, but it is realistic to, for a group of practices to share a team. And I think at its very basic level, that is what primary care networks are about. Mm. Um, as, you, as you mentioned, they need to be, I put it a little bit more simply, they need to be uh, large enough to share and small enough to care. With our current workforce crisis, I think that that needs to be the, the strap line. Yeah. And I think there will be lots of listeners who either remember the days you described when you started in practice, um, and many more who have felt the loss of, of, of some of that. So mm. um, hopefully this does uh, provide a real opportunity to return to that kind of uh, team-based care for a community. Yeah. Um, so you've had, you had the sort of the idea and the vision that this was uh, something that worth trying. How did you go about developing what that model looked like in Surrey and getting the buy-in of the various different groups of people you need to make that a reality? Well, so I think, firstly, we were doing some of it already. So I, this wasn't um, completely starting from a blank page. Um, a number of our localities had already been quite entrepreneurial. Um, uh, if you remember the Prime Minister's Challenge money many years ago, they'd actually applied for that and not, um, not got it. But based on the business case, they decided, OK, even though we didn't get the funding, we, this seems like such a good idea, we're going to go ahead and do it anyway. And so they had formed an integrated team um, around um, complex frail elderly um, and were, were working at sort of proactively, um, uh, proactively going into uh, hospitals and taking um, elderly patients who were well enough to be discharged back out into the community and supporting them into the, in the community as an integrated team. So it, one area was already doing that. Uh, another area um, developed, in my particular area, developed um, what we called a frailty hub, which again was um, all of the partnership organisations working in one central hub uh, where um, complex 
frail uh, patients were able to be referred. We worked from the GP record so that the patient didn't have to tell the story three million different times, which is often a, a difficulty. And we had all the services available for that patient in one appointment on one visit with one set of transport. Mm. So if you count the number of times a patient with four complex conditions has to visit a hospital for their outpatients, uh, for those four consultants, we managed to make significant uh, resource shift uh, by reducing uh, re reducing those n that need for constant visits to the hospital, as well as obviously make a significant impact to the patient's mm. journey and their quality of their journey. So those were already going on. Um, they were uh, initiatives that the CCGs had decided to fund themselves. So really, um, this was a natural progression to get that they were helping pockets, if you like, of our Heartlands population, but not the whole population. So it, it, was, an, it was really a, a next step. And I think because our local GPs had seen it working, mm. had seen the benefits to patients, and actually sometimes the benefits to them as GPs, to know that you could refer somebody to a hub and that their needs, including their social care needs and their mental health needs and their health needs, uh, physical health needs uh, would be met in one place makes a significant um, time saving mm. for a GP who doesn't then have to ring six different places uh, to get the same uh, results. So actually I think GPs started to see locally that there was benefit um, and then started to embrace the model. So um, you had some uh, exemplars within your own community or within your own area of, of places that had tried this more integrated collective working. Yeah. But I suppose a challenge I see in, in lots of parts of the country is you, you, there are a few f sort of uh, early adopters and front runners, mm -hmm. but there are quite a few who, you know, maybe look at this with a bit of scepticism. Yeah. Um, just another reorganisation. Yeah. Um, I'll wait for it to pass. How have you engaged, sort of, not necessarily the um, the usual candidates, but the, the yeah. wider sort of uh, GP community and. Sure. So, I mean, we've had a number of large events. We, we ran masterclass, what we call masterclasses, um, where we brought in national speakers um, and, uh, and we spoke ourselves about what we thought the future looked like. Um, we tried to give people the heads up of what was coming from the meetings we were attending. Um, and actually, GPs are pretty bright people and they could see that there was going to be change and, and uh, you know, most of them just wanted some help in direction of, of what that might look like. Um, we ran, um, uh, we as CCGs, we provided sort of facilitation. Um, we started to suggest, uh, once practices came, uh, had started to have conversations about wanting to work together, um, we offered them support, um, for example, office space, neutral office space to come together. Um, and um, meet because quite often there needed to be meeting in a neutral place, not one of the practices. Um, we provided help with, um, well, with whatever they wanted really, um, memorandums of understanding if they were at that stage where they wanted to talk about how they could start the process of working together. We also developed a, a federation at the same time in my patch, this is one area of the three uh, areas that make up Heartlands, um, we developed our federation across the whole of our patch um, and um, started providing, providing extended access at scale. Um, and that, of course, started, that was a great um, example of how you can work together mm. um, because uh, the extended access started to um, happen out of a number of surgeries on behalf of 
a group of surgeries and it, it started to, I think, uh, realise the model and um, GPs were able to see actually how it would work for their patients and patients began to see how it would work and of course it's a big change for patients as well um, to understand that they might not go traditionally to the surgery that they used to go to to receive their services, they might end up being sent to a GP surgery a little further down the road um, or a community centre to, uh, to, you know, to receive the services that traditionally they went to their own registered practice for. So the extended access piece actually has really helped us to sort of move on a little bit on the journey. Thank you. And talking about patients there, has there been any approach in, in, to incorporate local patients' views on, on what their services might look like? And I guess it'll be different for every network, but have you had a, has there been a sort of structured approach to that or has it been up to the networks to decide how and when to engage their patients? Sure. Um, on, a, on a sort of um, high-level uh, stage, our ICS has done an awful lot of work with citizens. Um, because we're a um, devolution uh, ICS, we have our county council colleagues as part of our system. Um, and of course, citizen engagement in the county council is, is their bread and butter. They do a really good job of it. And we as health have really tried to learn um, how to do proper citizen engagement. Uh, and we've been really lucky that we've got a whole um, sort of empire of, of citizens now who are our citizen voice. Um, and so we have done a number of high-level engagements uh, across the system around primary care networks. Um, I would have to say individual networks themselves are probably still um, at a very embryonic stage in most of my networks um, for that um, patient voice to, be, uh, to have been sought. Most of us have um, patient participation groups um, and some really, really um, good and active and engaged uh, citizens as part of our uh, patient participation groups. So I can see an absolute natural uh, trend to, to involve them in, in the network development. Um, so I think that's still a work in progress, I would say, but it's on most people's agenda. Yeah, it's often something that we can always do more of, isn't it? Um, yeah, and it's about doing it so that it's not just tokenistic I think that's the word that I get I hear quite a lot and I hear from citizens quite a lot don't just bring me along Mm. so you can tick a box and say you've brought a citizen along Mm. um, to you know tick Um, actually it's about um, really properly um, engaging them and and sometimes it's also about knowing at what point to engage well I was going to say it's a it's a risk or it's it's a challenge isn't it because there's um there's engaging with patients to say this is the plan we've come up with together and this is what we're going to be doing Mm. or there's involving them in that early conversation but if you don't have the relationships in place to support that then then it's not going to be effective either so there's a it's It's a a real balance balance. yeah Yeah. interestingly in one of our particular pcns which is a mental health uh, primary care network we do have um what what they call patient ambassadors so they are usually um, patients who have a who have experienced mental health uh, or are, are currently patients uh, with, with mental health, um, and they are used to help new patients navigate the service, and that's um, a new role um, that's being developed. In one, we've got uh, three pilots doing a, a mental health primary care network, and interestingly, they've been really really valuable in areas that have run this network. Um, for longer than we have because patients often um, find it easier to talk to other patients um, some you know about their needs um, and 
you know, and often those patients can navigate them a little bit easier than, than a clinician. Yeah, and I really like that recognition that uh, actually networks don't have to do this all themselves. We can look to system partners who have got experience doing it. The local authorities said, yeah. you know, as I said, bread and butter, this mm. is how they work. So that idea of learning from those around us and who, who you know, our colleagues who do this well already. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, that's really useful. In terms of implementing the, the, the networks then and sort of building them up, you mentioned um, the importance of having projects uh, and success stories to look to in bringing people along. What sort of support have you given networks around identifying their initial challenges and their initial opportunities to work together? So I think f uh, it was again a balance. Um, we didn't, when we first um, asked the networks to think of a project that they would like to work on, we, we had the help of um, NAPC, National Association of Primary Care and their primary care home model. Um, and one of the things that they were advising us is, you know, to allow this to develop organically, but that networks needed to come up with a, a sort of first project to bring them together, something that they can have as an experience of doing together um, to develop those relationships. Because as with all businesses, really, all, all relationships, you need um, trust and you need to develop trust. It doesn't just come out of, the, out of thin air. So um, we had... Um, once people had organised themselves into the networks that they wanted to be in, um, we provided what we called a menu um, of options, um, which were a list of um, projects that we were aware of um, at a CCG level, um, because we map uh, unwarranted variation. It's one of our, you know, one of our jobs is to know where we have pockets of of. Uh, of, of variation um, that shouldn't that we feel shouldn't be there, um, so we were able to put down a few suggestions where we thought that networks would like to focus. But we also had uh, on the same page a comment that we would allow any mm. suggestion of a project that that made sense to that network. You Can know, you give a few examples of the projects that people have chosen to, to focus on first? Yeah, sure. So from a clinical perspective, um, we had um, we had a, 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 a group of practices, a network very near our, that, that geographically sit very near our acute trust. Um, and they looked at some data from their acute trust on their um, paediatric attendances uh, to our uh, to the trust paediatric assessment unit, which mm. was very well renowned, ve had very well respected, um, but they were shocked by the number of under fives um, uh, pitching up to the PAU with hot kids, mm. um, and so they decided that actually they wanted to um, run a uh, hot kid clinic, for example, so that um, there was a so they've started as a group of practices um, a drop-in session. Uh, so mums with children under five who are acutely unwell that day with a fever um, can just turn up at eleven o'clock. They don't need to have rung reception. They don't need to have booked an appointment. They know they will sit and wait, um, but they will be seen. Um, and it's run, originally when it started, was run just by the, the GPs. Uh, they've then got trained up AMPs. Um, and there's now a conversation, interestingly, going on with the acute trust um, about maybe um, sh a sharing of a paediatric consultant or, or even paediatric um, trainee, trainees, um, both nurses and uh, doctors who might want to do some um, of the minor illness mm. stuff that now the PAU is missing, mm. um, which is a good thing because PAU really isn't for minor illness. You know, it should be seeing the higher acuity stuff. But of course, it is an important part of the hospital's training um, as well. So, it, so sometimes you have good consequences. Sometimes mm. consequences appear 
along the line that you then have to think, well, okay, it is right that, high, that the lower acuity stuff isn't turning up in our A&Es, mm. but what does that mean for training for some of our juniors? Um, and then we have to have a workaround for that. So mm. let's bring those juniors out uh, mm. into the community. Um, and actually that supports a workforce need in the community and it also provides a training need for the hospital. So That sounds really exciting. Yeah. yeah so not only are practices coming together around a project, they're building relationships with other system partners like the hospital, um, but we're also starting to see that move of um, specialists, tra trainees in this case, into the community um, so that when they are consultants they'll have a much greater understanding of what is possible in their community. Yeah. Can I go back to something you mentioned earlier? You described, um, well, you've described the importance of relationships um, and you've described um, allowing networks to develop organically and, and the support of an APC in doing that. Um, in some areas, there may be a challenge over um, for CCGs or ICSs or STPs um, between allowing that organic development of networks based on practices that naturally um, Sit together. Sit together, thanks. Um, versus ensuring population coverage um, and contiguous populations around natural communities. Mm -hmm. How have you balanced the need to allow that organic development and support that whilst also ensuring your population is sort of sufficiently and sensibly covered? Yeah, um, that's a really good question, uh, Will, because it's not easy, if I'm honest. Um, we've been very lucky in Surrey Heartlands um, to have 90% practices have been sensible and have have realized that they need to work in a geographically sensible uh, selection we still have um, areas where that is difficult and it's difficult for really complex reasons and and I think that is absolutely the role of your CCG um, and CCG uh, chairs and clinical leaders ought to be the people trying to find a solution mm. for these practices um, generally speaking we've tried to have a I guess a mantra if you like, which is that um, if this has to be right for your population, this is about population health. Um, so I've tried to ask GPs to group themselves where they think their population needs are similar. So we have got practices that aren't geographically right next door to each other. Um, but they have chosen to group with another practice or group of practices where they have similar population needs. So for example, we have a, um, a, a, a town where the needs are all quite similar, mm -hmm. you know, um, and it makes absolutely se absolute sense that all of those practices, which makes them much bigger than 50,000, by the way, mm. um, group together because their population variance is going to be the same. Yeah. Now they might choose as a sort of sub-network to look at different things. Mm. But they've been working together as a locality um, and are now a network for six, seven years. And I was not going to make them split into three primary care networks to fit mm. the thirty to 50,000 um, population um, because actually that would have put efforts into doing something that I don't think would have brought any benefit yeah. to the patient. Yeah. Um, so what we've done is we've just said, well, that, it makes sense, you're urban. You've worked together for six years as 102,000, so you will carry on as a PCN at 102,000. But what you might find with your population health data is that, you know, uh, pocket A within your network might want to look at something different to pocket C, mm. and that's okay. 
Um, and so that we've kind of tried to be sensible and flexible. And then, you know, we've still got areas where we haven't quite got it sussed. Yeah. <laughs> well, Watch that's good space. to hear. You're, you're still human in Surrey Heartlands. That's good to yeah, hear. Yeah, no, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we haven't got it sussed everywhere. Um, one of the things that I'm sure you've heard, and, and we've heard a couple of times, is um, that sort of distinction between focusing on form and function. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of encouragement to focus on those relationships and what we want to achieve together. Some governance is needed, isn't it? And, and often it's uh, something that slightly more anxious uh, practices or partners kind of focus on because actually mm. this feels uncomfortable and different. Mm. Um, what sort of support have you given networks around their governance structures and, um, and how did you develop that yourselves? Sure. Um, so again, I think we used NAPC quite a lot for that. So they have obviously done... Um, what they called clusters in the old day um, for, for many years and, and they've pretty much written an MOU for every type of uh, uh, joining. Um, as far as I'm aware none of them are talking about making super practices uh, or anything like that at the moment. Mm. All of our practices are coming together as, um, as colleagues working on a common uh, partners, if you like, working on a common project. What benefits have you seen? Are there, are there any descriptions you can give us of the benefits of networks uh, in your area, either for patients or for staff? Yes. So I think I'll, I'll separate it. So I think for patients, um, certainly things like the extended access, well, that's just more available appointments for patients. It also is helping to... Um, uh, teach patients, if you like, that they can go to another building and see a different doctor or different healthcare professional and still have a positive outcome to the, the reason for their visit. So, and I think that that in training the general public, uh, moving, if you like, the general public away from that traditional model of I have to see my GP for this um, has been really positive. Um, and I think having extended access so patients can be seen Saturdays and Sundays and weekends and uh, sorry and evenings has definitely been beneficial. Um, we've had a paramedic visiting service so that our patients um, are seen, in, uh, you know, the traditional uh, GP model where we do our visits after our morning surgeries. Mm. So quite often we're not out to patients before midday, one o'clock which means by the time the ambulance is called, they're quite often not into the hospital before two, three o'clock, sometimes a little later, and clearly landing a patient who's elderly and complex and frail and needs investigations at three, four o'clock, not only is a bottleneck for the trust, but also getting all those investigations done is difficult. Mm. So we, having a paramedic visiting service means that we've been able to get paramedics out to patients when they call for visits at nine o'clock in the morning. Mm. Uh, they're assessed. The, the paramedics have our notes, they have our GP records on an EMIS anywhere, so they're not, you know, it's much easier for them than a 999 paramedic. Um, they make a judgment of, as to whether that patient does need conveying to hospital or they come back to the practice and say, actually, the patient doesn't need a conveyance but does need XYZ. So for that patient, that journey is, if they do need a conveyance to hospital, has been done early in the morning for the trust they've been able to see that patient at 10.30 in the, in the unit when it's, I'm not gonna say it's quiet because it's never <laughs> quiet, but you know, when there's more likelihood of that patient getting the CT scan or, uh, or whatever they need, um, uh, and there's more likely that that patient can come home, uh, you know, so the ambulatory care aspect of that patient's journey is much better. So that's had a massive impact for our, for a, a, you know, a sector of our population. Um, 
uh, our mental health PCNs have definitely improved the sort of what I would call non-specialist, so tier two access to mental health for a lot of our population. So the vast majority of primary care mental health that doesn't meet the specialist thresholds um, but are kind of in a bit of a no man's land. That service has made a, a massive difference to, to those patients. Um, from a primary care perspective, um, I think we touched on it right at the beginning, um, it's bringing back the integrated care team. The team that we remember, well those of us who are old enough, um, remember having access to and it's for that team it's bringing back the team because a lot of our partner organisations, our district nurse services, our community mental health services, are feeling very, very um, isolated. Mm. You know, they that's not what they went into district nursing for, um, you know, to be sent here, there and everywhere and not have a, a, a list of patients who they holistically care for. So actually to bring them back under an umbrella where they feel part of a team um, and, a, and a wider team, not just a team of district nurses, um, that's had a uh, that's that's starting to have uh, I would say starting to have because we're not you know we're not a long way into our journey yet but it's certainly starting to have an impact on them mm. and they're wanting to work in in Surrey Heartlands which is great for us because mm. from the workforce point of view we're all f you know we're all falling over trying to recruit so being able to retain people at that at the other end is uh, can only be a good thing yeah. yeah I think one other thing I guess I should say from a very GP focused perspective um, is a lot of the so the frailty hub piece um, and having the um, having some urgent on the day uh, changes uh, around the extended access has allowed some GPs to move from 10 to 15 minute appointments um, so, so that they're seeing the more complex patients but having in fact, some of our practices have moved to 20 minutes, so having longer mm. um, to manage those patients. Because as you can expect, if the acuity of what a GP is seeing is getting harder, mm. um, they need longer um, to see those patients. Uh, and some of the things that are being put in place are allowing um, some networks to move their GPs to longer appointments. Oh, there'll be lots of people for whom that sounds very appealing. Yes. <laughs> Charlotte, from your experience of supporting and developing primary care networks in Surrey, what top tips or advice would you have for people who are, are starting that journey into, into finding their natural partners and their community around which to base their network? Um, so I think ask for help. So I would, I would be very surprised if CCGs and uh, STPs and ICSs are not offering help uh, to networks uh, to support their development. I think uh, reach out, so send the email. You know, send the email to the group of practices. Um, I don't think people will turn each other down. I think most GP practices are desperate for somebody to take the lead um, and to just start that initial, why don't we have a meeting um, and talk about this. Um, and if, if your CCGs are not doing that, um, then do it yourself. Um, you know, send an email to the practice managers, for example, of the groups of practices that you think um, make geographical sense. Um, m most CCG areas ha have, have already got structures in place where they meet regularly with their members. Mm. Um, so um, 
you could always use one of those sessions um, uh, and suggest to whoever leads that session for you, be it uh, your clinical chair or, or uh, maybe a primary care manager, um, that you use that session um, to discuss as a bigger group of members um, how you might like to move forward on network development. But I would suggest either use the structures that are already regularly in place to meet, but if, if you're unlucky enough not to have any structure like that, to just reach out, um, because everybody will have read the contract. <laughs> everybody will be waiting um, you know, for somebody to make the move. Um, and there might be a natural um, leader that comes um, out of a group. There might not be, and it might be that you need to have a discussion um, you know, once you've agreed that you are the right grouping geographically, um, you might need to have a discussion about who, who would be the best person to take on that clinical director role. Mm. But there are a number of people in your CCG who are employed, both as primary care managers um, and as clinical leaders, to support you in that journey. So I would urge you to make contact with your clinical chair um, and to, with your primary care manager in your CCG um, and ask what support is available. Mm. Thank you. And are there any particular obstacles that you've identified or, or, or things you've tried that haven't worked that you know, you'd flag up to, to listeners? Oh, good question. Um, so I, I think pressure, so time pressure. Um, we, I guess as an IC, Wave 1 ICS, we have been under, we have to balance the pressure of um, you know, ticking the boxes and getting every all the networks signed up and 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 all of the um, matrices completed and the maturity matrices completed um, uh, for you guys, um, with the reality of developing real networks takes time. Mm. So uh, again, I think that's probably more of a problem for the clinical leaders um, that are facing uh, the uh, facing up to NHS England um, in your system. Um, but it is a reality that we have to push back sometimes and say, "Listen, guys, you can't you can't force networks. They come slowly, organically, and naturally." Um, and um, so I, I think that's one thing I've learned is that sometimes I do just say, no, I can't complete that matrix today mm. because I haven't got the information. Yeah. Um, and I would say to people in my position, be brave mm. um, and be realistic. Um, for the networks themselves, um, don't worry about that. Worry about coming together mm. um, and um, starting a conversation. Um, I think one of the important things uh, in my role has been getting networks their data. Mm. That's been a real, um, sticking point uh, in our journey um, because um, getting real live usable uh, data that's not four years old um, about unwarranted variation and where where practice might want to look has been uh, difficult mm. it's interesting you mentioned that because surrey is often somewhere that people think of as a front runner in developing good primary care data yeah we've got loads of data it's what you can do with your data. Mm. So we are data rich, without a doubt, um, and because of our local authority link, we've got all our public health data now as well. And sometimes I think having so much data has made it slightly more complicated for us because we've wanted it to be supercharged. Mm. Um, and so it's taken us probably four months to get platforms for each of our local areas. Uh, and we do now have data at every network. 
Um, but we wanted that data to be more than the primary secondary care interface data. Mm. We wanted to overlay uh, deprivation data, we wanted to overlay smoking data, so we wanted to overlay a lot of what our public health colleagues hold uh, in our local authority onto our, um, our sort of the, the traditional non-elective uh, data and uh, elective admission data and four-hour target mm. and you know all of the traditional stuff that we see. We wanted that to be overlaid. Charlotte, I could um, carry on talking to you all morning about this, I think, um, but we haven't got uh, as much time as I'd like. I was going to ask you a bit about the future vision for Surrey, and we've touched on a little bit there. What are the next steps, do you think, in, in continuing to, to grow mm. your, your networks and, and support them? So I think, uh, for me, I, I need to get all my CDs, my clinical directors, um, in place. Um, and then um, not only in place for their networks, but also in place in their, strategically, in their places. Mm. Um, so we have in Surrey Heartlands, we obviously we're an integrated care system, but sitting underneath that integrated care system, we have three integrated care partnerships. Um, and our PCN clinical directors uh, need to be sitting at the highest board in those integrated care partnerships. Mm. Because I think my job is to make sure that primary care voice uh, is strong at every layer of our system mm. um, because it is a it is a part of the system although it sees probably 90% of the action um, it probably only has about 10% of the voice um, uh, and about 10% of the resource um, so uh, for me it's making sure that those clinical directors and I think that's the purpose of the contract and actually if you read the long-term plan it's very clear that clinical directors of primary care networks need to be in strategic roles in integrated care partnerships um, and it's in the contract, GP contract too. So I think it, for me it's to develop those clinical directors because some of them will be coming at this completely fresh. You know, they'll just be GPs who've never done anything uh, in, in this world before. So I know that uh, NHS England is looking at a development programme for clinical directors and I'm um, lucky enough to be feeding into that bit of work um, and we certainly in Heartlands want to um, look at a bespoke programme for those clinical directors so that we can help them on that journey because for some of them it'll be the first time they're sat around a board meeting with the chief executive of their local acute trust mm. um, and so that's an important thing for me to develop the clinical directors to get them strategically placed in the right places uh, in our system governance structure um, and I guess to just keep championing primary care right from the, from the top down, from the bottom up actually. Oh, they're lucky to have um, such a vivacious advocate for primary care um, and I think that vision of primary care integrated more fully with the local authority and other system partners but also having a stronger voice sounds, sounds one that to me as a, as a trainee sounds extremely exciting. So thank you for all your work and, uh, and thank you for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Oh, it's a pleasure, Will. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I hope you found this podcast useful and that it offers you some ideas that you can take away and use in your own in local area. And if you have found it useful, please do leave a rating or feedback via the podcast platform and, uh, and hit the subscribe button so that you make sure to hear when we get uh, further podcasts coming. We've got a plan to, to record several more with local leaders around the country. Um, and if you'd like to be involved, please do get in contact. In the meantime... If you'd like to find out more about the work that NHS England is doing, please do look at our website. We'll put the address in the show notes below. 
um, and soon we hope to publish some uh, FAQs on uh, common questions that have been emerging around network development. That's at uh, www.england.nhs.uk forward slash PCN. Or you can email us at england.pcn at nhs.net. Thanks so much for listening and uh, look forward to joining you next time.